0: Start, do it, just do it. Figure out, figure out what your risk tolerances are, leave everything else behind, give yourself a period of time, do it, just do it. Everybody, once you put it out there, people are gonna rally, it's amazing.
1: Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight-figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com. We are always here to help. Now today we have another great guest on the podcast, which is Teresa Zimmerman. Zimmerman. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I pronounced it right. And uh, Teresa was uh, founded a business about nine years ago for men's underwear, which is an interesting journey in and of itself to how do you get into that. But the journey started back in high school when she and then ended in college and uh, when she got a degree kind of uh, did that to check the boxes and uh, be able to have that degree as part of that then uh, moved or moved on and ended up going doing a longer career in consulting that worked with a lot of fortune 100 companies and whatnot worked with some big uh, big agencies but never really owned her own work or did her own thing so decided to make the leap from corporate to doing her own thing um talked with a few different people kind of explore things and decided to land on men's underwear and uh, did that for a period of time was uh Got into into selling it, figuring out what the market was and how to make even better product and then been doing it ever since. So with that much as a uh, uh, introduction, welcome on the podcast, Teresa.
0: Wow, thank you. No, thank you for having me. That's, uh, that's the full story. I don't know what I could elaborate on. <laughs>
1: well, we can just as the old side field goes, we'll just leave out a hideout. We'll just walk out there. know. But I gave kind of the brief uh, 30 yeah. second high level overview. But uh, why don't you take us back in time a bit kind of the high school college time frame, and tell us a little bit about how your journey got going and uh, how what led to where you're at today.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe serendipity um, uh, comes into play, you know, since uh, I've been trying to get into men's underwear most of my life. So uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's my, that's my short story. It all worked out. <laughs> um, <the idea. laughs> it all worked out. Yeah. No. So, um, I mean, as you said, for me, um, you know, formal education was, it, it was all checkboxes. I mean, I just, I, I was, I probably rushed through things way too much just because I wanted to get on to know whatever was going to be real next i don't know why i didn't think that what i was doing at any moment in time wasn't real enough and you know important enough but i was like i just needed something next i got to had to go so check all the boxes that you know you're expected to check and um and then get on with life um but it was a journey I, i i mean i couldn't script it uh for sure so, um, you know, went from high school to uh, changing. I got into all of my colleges early, and then at the very last minute, decided I wasn't going to do any of that. I was going to be mm. a veterinarian, <laughs> and um, can- canceled all of that and and kind of started from scratch. And I think it was like April before my before I graduated that spring, which is like crazy late but uh, I decided that college was going to be a checkbox too. And I wasn't going to spend a lot of time um, and extra years doing some sort of medical degree, which, you know, mm-hmm. it's probably better for, for everybody. But in um, any case, um, same, same with college. I started in Boulder, Colorado, my first year, I skied a lot. <laughs> um, I did not have anybody holding me accountable. So to go to school, cause it's such a big school. And so I got away with everything in order to be on the ski slopes it was fabulous but I knew in order to check the box I had to leave so I ended up transferring myself to Santa Clara University mm. where which was like 180 degrees out right I mean you're you're uh it's it's a small Jesuit liberal arts university compared to a big public you know Maybe thirty thousand students at the time, down to twenty five hundred students, maybe maybe fewer. That might have included graduate students at the time. So um, I kind of had to study a little bit more, but I played a lot. So it was it was a blast. Um, After after college, I moved myself to Tokyo. Um, My Japanese teacher in college told me I would she would never recommend me for a job in Japan. So of course, (laughs) that's where I went. Um, Ended up, I mean. It, I, it, during the 80s, it made a little bit more sense than it does now. I mean, everything was happening in Japan. Japan had just bought Rockefeller Center. I mean, they were buying the world. So it made a lot of sense that that's, you know, mm. if you wanted to be in, in the throes of things, that that's where you'd be. So that's where I went. And, and I ended up spending a couple of years there. So uh, it was always one day at a time. Um, mm. I threw myself into things all the time, but with an attitude of you can do anything for a short period of time. Break it down. It's one day, you know, make it to the next day, make it to the next day, you know, and at some point it becomes a year. And um, so that was fairly fabulous. And um, through that whole thing, I ended up, um, you know, being uh, jumping into some consulting and marketing and, and brand strategy. And, you know, that was kind of my, my life's love doing brand strategy work with really big companies with really big problems at the now, time they were question, trying to solve to, problems. One
1: question, because I mean, it, it's hard enough. And I know a lot of consultants have done a great job, but it's already a hard enough thing to get into consulting here in the U.S. where I know the language, know the culture and everything else. Now you're over in a different culture, a different language, everything else. How did you get into consulting while you were in Japan?
0: Yeah, good question. Well, so at the time there, I was kind of acting, I was acting a little bit as a go-between between between the company, the the company, that the Japanese company that I worked for was a business services company. So they had a, they had a huge uh, range of services that they offered. Um, I they hired me because I was a token blonde Californian. I mean, let's be real, right? I knew nothing, um, mm-hmm. and didn't even have a recommendation from my Japanese teacher. So, um, uh, so there was no, you know, there was I, there was no pretending I was something I wasn't there. Um, but I took advantage of it, right? And so I got into conversations that I probably should never have gotten involved with. But my my consulting there was a little bit more mediation. So I worked for a Japanese company. A lot of U.S. companies and European companies were coming into the country trying to do business there, and they needed somebody who could form a bridge um, in what they wanted to do and and uh, and then the Japanese companies they wanted to do it with. And so, um, in a really, really, really small way, that's kind of where that's kind of where I started my. Um, my consulting practice um, and, you know, you know, turned that into a career for myself um, because, I mean, I studied, this is going to sound, sound funny, but I mean, I studied political science in, at Santa Clara and I really think that set me up well for it because with political science specifically there, or, you know, maybe liberal arts colleges generally, you know, you are forced to consume a, this much information mm. in a very short period of time and condense it down to a couple of points that then you need to defend or put forth or have a position on, hear somebody else's you know, opinions and I'm sure you do the same thing in, in uh, you know, legal studies and then decide if you have your position changed or not and be able to explain all that. So you're doing a lot of translation, so to speak in that. Um, and so I think I found, I think I found that um, kind of natural for me loved it loved it
1: definitely and i I think it it sounds like a a fun part of the journey so now you were in japan for a while working with the big consulting firm what brought or when when did you come back to the u.s or what brought you back to the u.s or you're saying hey i've had enough i'd like to go home be my family yeah or miss the culture or kind of what what uh uh, prompted that shift
0: yeah it it was time to go home Uh, for sure it was time to go home i spent a couple years in boston and then i um and then with with the guy um, and then I um, jumped over to Brussels, Belgium. I lived in Brussels for five years. I ended up um, starting with the agency world there. And that's really where I kind of started growing into working with really big companies um, there. And, and because, again, I was you know, not native, any language there, um, it, I, I ended up always working at kind of a higher level because I wasn't going to be the one to speak local you know, whether it's local culture, local issues, local, whatever. So I always ended up in a strategic or planning role, um, which, you know, served me well. And it's, you know, where my interests lie anyway. So um, that ended up being um, kind of the start of my agency career. And agency is where I, you know, it fed my ADD, so to speak, right? Because with agencies, you work with a lot of different clients all at the same time. So, mm. you know, you can be working with a, back in technology infrastructure client and and a mining and metals client and, um, you know, financial services client all in the same, all at the same time. And so you've got to be on your game with all of those things at any one moment in time when you're speaking with them. So I just loved it.
1: And I'm, I'm the same way. And, I, and we were chatting even a little bit before the, the podcast when we started about, you know, I've got, I do Miller IP law where we do patents and trademarks. Right. I've also you know, as a packer, and I've done several, and I continue several startups and small businesses. Um, yep. We just recently rebranded, relaunched one of the businesses that's in the religious or l- religious products. And then I'm also started and my goal is to have, it'll probably, I, I hope it, my goal is to have it this summer. It may be the following summer, but to have an orchard with a hundred trees planted on the, some land. So I, I completely get the ADD of, of yeah. like, liking to do lots of products, liking to see lots of different things. And so yeah. definitely makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, love it. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, even when I left consulting and agencies, I still do coaching and advising. I still do a bunch of other stuff. I'm writing some books and, you know, and then of course, nine years ago, I started What Underwear, which is kind of my, uh, my baby at the moment, uh, my nine-year-old baby at the moment. So it's, uh, yeah, but it's, I, you know, this day and time when you can work remote and when you don't, aren't tied and I'm not sure that I'm involved in the gig economy necessarily, but I love the fact that we all have so much flexibility and freedom in a way that we didn't, you know, even five years ago.
1: No, and I I completely agree, I completely agree with all that. And I think that it lends itself to, you have a lot more opportunities. You know, what was interesting is, and I was talking with somebody else and I neglect or i forget the name and so i apologize for whichever listener the area you know whichever guest that was we were chatting a bit about how it used to be, you know, that startups and small businesses had a huge failure rate and you know, you made it five or 10 years, whatever statistic you looked at, that was when you made it. And that was when, you know, that now you're likely to go to continue to succeed. And it's almost started, the paradigm started to shift where startups, small businesses are the ones that are being more successful and the older businesses are having a much harder time and struggling. And it's just interesting how the paradigm shifts with, with all of or if the, as everything continues to evolve. Now, yeah. g- getting getting back from my rabbit hole, <laughs> which is, so now you, you, so you did, you know, you moved around a bit, you did big businesses, you went to Japan, came back to the yeah. U.S., did some consulting. I think you moved back yeah. to California at some point. I, I was I in,
0: uh, I was in Europe for five and a half years and then came back to the U.S. And then I ended up in Hong Kong for a couple of years as well. All this is through, you know, agency consulting hmm. and then uh, got back, came back to the United States um, and sort of planted myself in San Francisco for a little while. So, so now um,
1: and, one question, that I'll get to my real question. But what might because you know, moving around doing a lot of things, what made you finally decide to settle down in, in San Francisco? Is that uh, where family was? Sure. Where are you
0: <laughs> well So yeah, well, so I love San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco and Paris are probably my two favorite cities. At least they were then. Um, You know, I know that both of them are in a little bit of a of chaos and disarray in in different ways right now. But um, I've always loved um, both of those cities. And uh, when I came back to the United States, I had opportunity and you know wanted to be wanted to be there. Right. So when I went to Santa Clara University, um, they uh, you know technology was there, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I was graduating, all of, you know, my, my, you know, peers were taking on these tech jobs and, you know, there were a few of us are going like, why would you do that? What's technology, you know, who needs that? (laughs) Right. So, I mean, again, I didn't have a lot of foresight, um, uh, when I was younger, but, um, but it's such an exciting place to be, um, Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco specifically, um, because of a lot of that. Mm.
1: So now you get, now, and that definitely makes sense. You get back to San Francisco and you're saying, okay, starting to maybe settle down at least a little bit and, you know, got to still keep it exciting, but you start to settle down. You know, what, did you go and start working for big tech companies or continue to do consulting? Or? I was
0: still with my consulting company. I was still, I still, I was still with agency. So most of the time I was bouncing around with the same agency, just taking on different roles for them um, around the world. So, um, so there, there, there was the spot for me, Um, in San Francisco was with an agency that I had been in Hong Kong with. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was still managing the Asia Pacific region from San Francisco. So San Francisco is a good base for a lot of reasons.
1: So now you do that for a period of time. Now, how did you kind Mm -hmm. of get to the the itch of wanting to do your own thing you know was there how did i
0: well,
1: get to men's underwear <laughs> <laughs> well I'll, we'll get to men's underwear just a but even before you know and uh, definitely that's an interesting jump but even before that you've been doing agencies you've been going you know working you know with as a, as a consultant in, with the agency for yeah. quite a period of time in a lot of different locations what well, first before you got to men's underwear but what even prompted thinking hey i want to do my own thing start down my own path or you know switch yeah. up and not do that anymore
0: Yeah, well, you know, I think it was just a, it was a, uh, I was seeking some depth. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, I'd gone from, you know, this very broad, um, you know, broad and very timely PR marketing kind of function within agency uh, or, you know, role or purview um, into, you know, more advertising, then into more brand strategy. So what that is, is, you know, PR is PR you're already late as soon as you put the press release out you're probably already late it's already happened right when you when you do advertising you want your advertising to last for a little while right you see ads over and over for a period of time, and then they go away so it's a little longer lasting. When you do somebody's brand or work on their brand strategy that's decades in the making that's that may be longer right so um, there's some depth to that that I loved. Um, But then, you know, taking it another step further is um, there was, I, I wanted to own something, right? As a consultant, you're working on someone else's projects. So, and I don't, I didn't necessarily mean own literally, but, you know, that's certainly part of it. But when you're working on someone else's stuff, it's their baby, you're helping, right? However, however much you're helping, it's not your baby. So I was looking for something that I could get into and get my hands on. I wanted it to be a, you know, a thing, not a service. Um, And, you know, then I just went through, went through a good, you know, at least 12, 18 month exploration of different areas. And it it included services too. It included, you know, my exploration included franchises, it included starting services companies, it included buying companies. Um, It was a, it was a pretty broad, broad exploration.
1: Now, when you're exploring, did you actually try some of those? I mean, did you do other startups or businesses, or is it more exploring into not. it and see what you thought?
0: Yeah, I did not. Um, although not for lack of trying, um, because <laughs> I did make offers on a couple of companies, and they did not, you know, it, we, we went pretty far down the path. I went pretty down far, down far down the path with some people, you know, to get into other businesses. Um, it just didn't end up working out. So, um, so Wood was was really, you know, the first company that I, you know, launched.
1: So now, so you, you know, you, you look into it, you do the other companies, mm-hmm. you get, you know, try and make some offers didn't work out, you know, you, you go through the all the various things and saying, Hey, I, I know I want to do my own business kind of have something I own, you know, both, you know, physically, but also just, you know, kind of that you can yeah say this is mine, type of a thing and so how did you as you're weaving through all those exploring different things making offers and that how did you now now I'll ask a question how did you land or land on men's underwear
0: um well I've already used up my joke so um <laughs> <laughs> no so um I was doing some brainstorming as part of this exploration with with some other people um what uh, underwear came out of it uh, my husband happened to I showed him a prototype and um and then I kind of just set it aside. And he, um he harassed me for about three months. Um, and just said, you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this until I finally said, you know, how how hard can it be to, you know, sell a few pair of men's underwear, really. So, and here we are nine years later, and I can tell you, it's hard, it's harder to sell it than it is to buy it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. So now, because I think one of the things I think you talked about, so you, you kind of got that feedback said, Okay, you know, got some support from your spouse. Yeah, and- those other things and then you started to i if i remember right and me where i'm wrong started kind of taking more off of the shelf of, for lack of a better word underwear and kind of initially using that but it wasn't to the quality and to the standards that you wanted Is yeah that right?
0: yeah so what you're referring to is um the the first product that i had um i had one style in four colors mm-hmm. and um i had a lot of it um and i uh i ended up um loading up my car and, you know, driving around LA and walking into stores and asking the buyer owner if they wanted to see my underwear. Um, and that, I mean, that was really my pitch. And, um, I, I learned a lot that year. I mean, that was probably the first six months of that first year. And, um, I, uh, I sold some, which is, is awesome, and it kept me going, and um, I uh, some of my best customers are still some of those customers that I did that, you know, that that was my first experience with, um, but the back half of that first year, um, I changed everything. I changed the manufacturer, the fabric, the packaging, the, I mean, it, the whole thing changed, um, and I started out that second year, January of that second year, with really what is the the um, beginnings of the line that we have today. So, you know, we've got five different styles of underwear, some thongs and jocks, we've got undershirts, we've got loungewear, we've got Henleys, um, you know, all all those sort of core basics. Um, And, you know, really trying to build the story around it. So our fabrics um, are, they have wood viscous in the fabric. So there's that part of the story. We're certainly having fun with the name and it being men's underwear. Um, you know, my whole life is a pun fest right now, so it's <laughs> it's it's a blast. Um, but it's uh, it's good though because all of those experiences. I mean, one of those experiences, I drove um, I drove north to uh, San Francisco. I had a couple of trunk shows set up with stores. Had my list of who I was going to uh, talk to all the way up to Seattle stopped into a store in Portland, and um, he knew I was coming before I even knew I was there because he had somebody call him from San Francisco who had seen me at a trunk show. And when I walked in, he knew who I was, which was shocking to me. I had no idea (laughs) that men's underwear was so connected. Um, But uh, I left left his office and I got in my car and I canceled all my other appointments and I cried all the way to Seattle because everything that he told me that was wrong with my product was absolutely true and that's why I spent the last six months of that year changing things and improving and I mean I had the good I had good basics the foundations were there I just needed to put more work into it and, and I did he was totally right
1: so now now I'm gonna shift to. so we've kind of brought you up to the story of where you're at today yeah now, where do you, as an underwear, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, and I could, you could tell me about, but it doesn't seem like there's a, a large amount of area to innovate within men's underwear, but where do you take the company? Is it getting into more stores? Is it innovating new products? And you can prove me wrong that there's lots of innovation to be had there, or kind of where do you guys kind of see the next six to 12 months going for you?
0: Uh, so six to 12 months is one or two seasons. So um, in men's, menswear has two seasons a year. I think women's has like six, sometimes eight seasons a year. I don't even know how they do that. Um, so uh, it, it, it's one to two seasons is a pretty short amount of time where what we focus on, we focus on specialty stores. Um, we felt that means boutiques that means independently owned Um, sometimes they own multiple doors you know there are chains that are owned by private individuals um, and uh, but that's where that's where we live we live there because I love Main Street I think Main Street is the foundation of our whole community, um, main street, you know, is, 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 is the basis of our neighborhoods. Um, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to think about having a community in a neighborhood without that main street sort of component to it. Um, and those independent store owners and operators are just critical, I think, um, uh, to, to society. So I love to work there and that's, that's kind of what drives me. And that's, that's like, completely opposite from where I started in corporate um, which is also pretty fabulous Um, and then so for men's underwear there's innovation maybe in the for in the context of IP maybe not a lot of innovation because you can prove me wrong on this I don't think that there's a whole lot you can defend (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um, but there men don't have all of the fabrics women have so there are fabrics out there that um, men are only just now being exposed to and women, women have had them for decades. Um, there's uh, and when when you when you figure out what's been out there for women all this time and you kind of go, what? I mean, how come I, how come I didn't how come this? we didn't have this? Right. How come we didn't have this? Um, and then also there's an education that needs to happen with men that isn't again, maybe necessarily innovation but education's important too. And that is that um, men need to diversify their underwear drawer. I mean, if you, this is gonna be a huge generalization and I don't mean to offend people but I know some people would be offended by what I'm gonna say right now. You look in a man's underwear drawer across the United States, open it up. You're gonna find the style color brands of underwear that his mother put there when he was 15. <laughs>
1: that's that's probably a fair or it's a, it's a fair generalization i'm sure there's yeah.
0: exceptions
1: but yeah yeah there are true.
0: exceptions absolutely but um but yeah so as a as a as a general rule um that's going to be fairly true and the worst part of that is is depending, really kind of doesn't matter how old you are you might have some of the same pair in there <laughs> men's underwear drawers are really dated mm. So, so now you're um, so on
1: a mission to change men's <laughs> underwear drawers, one drawer at a time. Correct,
0: correct, correct. And there are some kinds, styles, colors of underwear you don't wear for every occasion or under every pair of pants, right? I mean, a bit, you know, sort of no brainer. Your gym underwear is not your date night underwear.
1: <laughs> well, right? hopefully not. Some people probably that's the same, but yeah. no. Should, like
0: should not be, right? Should not be,
1: shouldn't be as a key word. Should not be. <laughs> well, as we start to wrap up the podcast, and there's always so many things I would think it'd be fun to talk about, we never have time to, but I always ask two questions at the end of each episode. And as a reminder, we also have the bonus question that we'll talk a little bit after the normal yeah. episode about IP. But the normal two questions I ask are, um, first one is, is um, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? And what did you learn from it?
0: Yeah, no, I, you prepped me for this and I, I struggle with the answer, not that I don't have an answer, but to struggle with one, right? There's Mm -hmm. so many, there's so many mistakes that you make in business. I mean, I guess um, the, the one that comes to mind is I didn't know what I didn't know, but I don't think that's a mistake because I think as an entrepreneur, founder of a business, if you, if you knew what you didn't know, you wouldn't start right? So that's, that's just, you know, it's, it's better to go into some things ignorant and figure it out as you go. But I think my biggest business mistake was probably not listening to myself about talent. I think talent is a really big uh, issue for founders and entrepreneurs and business and people who lead businesses. Um, And it is having the right talent at the right time and also trying to find that talent when um, when you can't really when you don't really know that you can afford talent, yeah. you all you don't really know that you can't afford not to have good talent either. So I made some talent errors, um, brought in people where my gut was like, mm, you know, I I don't know, and um, you know you correct those decisions pretty quickly. But I probably should have avoided the. Error all together by just listening to myself a little bit more, trusting myself.
1: No, and I so. and I definitely agree. And you know, talent is one that's a I it's one where I think until you get into it, I mean you can always sit back and say, Oh, that was a gr- terrible hire. That was a great hire. But when you're sitting there trying to figure out who to hire, what to hire, and what to look for, it's a lot harder. And sometimes, yeah. especially as a small business, you don't even honestly know all the time that the positions aren't fully defined. It's not like you're in a big business and, Hey, we need a marketing people. It can do social, social media ads. And not only just social media ads, it has to be Facebook ads, not only Facebook ads, you know, and you can whittle it down because you have a big enough, you know, big enough pool of people that, you know, specific, but when you're a small business or startup, it's like I need someone that can do HR hiring and firing marketing and sales product. And, you know, that you have all these things and you can't hire 20 people all at once. So it it is a hard one to find those and, and to find the job. So I, I definitely get that. Is one word yeah or a a terrible or it can be a big anchor on the company.
0: Well, and you actually you make a really good point, and I'm gonna log the way you put that. I think it's easier to hire specialists than it is generalists, right? Mm -hmm. People who can wear that, you know, wear a lot of hats in a you know in a smaller location than somebody who knows how to just do one thing super super well. That a small business doesn't usually have the luxury to do. Yeah, that's a really good way to put that um yeah so and but my my talent so i i was smart enough to focus on sales talent the challenge was i wasn't smart enough to vet those people properly right sales can do a sales job on you <laughs> I mean, they're doing a good job right but um it doesn't necessarily mean they can do the work for you so yeah all
1: right now we'll jump to the second question which is if you're okay. talking to somebody that's just getting into a startup or a small business what'd be the one piece of advice you give them
0: Start. Do it. Just do it. Figure out, figure out what your risk tolerances are. Leave everything else behind. Give yourself a period of time. Do it. Just do it. Everybody, once you put it out there, people are going to rally. It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, my, the guy that, um, that, uh, runs my warehouse 3PL services, I went to high school with him when I first started my business, before I even launched, I sent out a note, an email to my, um, to you know, my contact list. That's all I had, and said, "Hey, friends, and you know, and colleagues, and family, here's what I'm going to do. Starting three weeks from now, I've got this container coming from China, and I'm going to do this and that, and I'm going to, you know, figure out how to climb the fence and get my product out, how to hawk at the dock, and." figure out how to get it to a warehouse and I'm going to be packing orders, you know, and taking them to the post office at night. So my friend, Kevin, as soon as I put that word out there, you know, he called me and he's like, Teresa, you're not doing any of that. There, there are companies that do this. I do this. I've got some room to do this. No, you're not doing that. So um, in a way, I mean, he really set the groundwork for, for us to be successful today by that one phone call, just reaching out. And that's what happens when you put it out there. If you're going to do something, just if you want to do it, put a plan together. You don't even need a big plan. Just got to start. Just start.
1: And I, you know, know, and I love that. And it's interesting. we're coming up on probably this is now, you know, not aired episodes, but over 200 episodes that will be by the time this airs. I'd say probably that's the number one answer across a lot of different entrepreneurs, a lot of different journeys is everybody, you know, it's a variation of basically just go ahead and start. Like, you know, you can always make excuses. You can always figure out reasons why not to do it. And yet you'll never or hardly ever regret, maybe somebody regrets it, but almost never regret getting started, trying it out. Even if you fail, like you get to try it out. You get to live your dream. You get to see if it works. If you like being an entrepreneur and you yep. leave aside all the what ifs and could have been's and I should have done that. And so I love the idea of just getting started. Well, yeah. as as we wrap up, you know, the normal episode, and again, reminder, we'll have the bonus question after the normal episode. Um, but as we wrap up this episode, if people want to reach out to you, they want to find out more, they want to be a customer, a client, they want to be a distributor, they want to be an employee, they want to be an yeah, investor, call me. they want to be your next best friend, any or Love all of it. the above, how do they reach out Love to
0: you? it. Love it. Well, I'm on LinkedIn, of course, Teresa Zimmerman, but you can um, you can email me at Teresa, T-E-R-R-E-S-A at whatunderwear.com. You can go to woodunderwear.com and make purchases there. We've got a first time purchase uh, discount code uh try wood, all one word. I think it's caps. I don't it may not be cap sensitive uh, or case sensitive, but um, give it a shot there. We'd love to have new customers, we'd love to have new friends.
1: <laughs> all right. So Lisa or some of the above, right? So Yeah, no. exactly. So now appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been a fun. It's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to share your journey. Just go to inventiveguest.com, apply to be on the show. And uh, a couple more things as listeners. One, click subscribe. So we know when all of our awesome episodes co- are, are air. And two, leave us a review. So when you know, or other people can find out about us as well. Last but not least, if you ever need help with patents, trademarks or anything else, just go to strategymeeting.com. So with that, now that we've, now that we've talked about through your journey, it's always kind of fun. I always, I'm always the one that gets to ask the questions and gets to direct things. And now we get to flip the tables a bit and you get to ask me the question. So with that, I'll turn it over to you to ask me what's your top intellectual <sighs> property question.
0: Oh, good. I'm excited about this. So, um, so we have, you go through the process of protecting your property, right? So we've got trademarks, we've got registration marks, um, in our, in my business. Um, but what happens when somebody infringes? I mean, how defensible is it really in the United States, and then more complicated outside the United States? So mm. it's and at what point do you decide you can't defend it?
1: Yeah, and that, those are a few questions in there. So way to yeah. do a compound question into one question. Now, <laughs> um, you no. Know, question is it defensible yeah with enough time if if you're in the right you know frivolous lawsuits aside but let's say you have a legitimate claim somebody is knocking off your brand they're knocking off whether it's patents or trademarks or anything else with, with enough time and effort you can usually defend it and be victorious now the i think so you know and that can be everything from and it's not always a lawsuit sometimes it's you reach out to them and you send them a cease and desist, and they say hey i didn't realize you were a brand i didn't realize we're a cr- an issue and they resolve it and a lot of times you get two business owners are being reasonable you can out or resolve it outside the courts. you know you can also reach out to them and say hey if you're going in down this road if you're interested we provide a license you can take a license from our brand and you can become you know have that as a business arrangement and have that as an income or you can say if they blow you off you can go file a lawsuit and you can generally be you know have some success the bigger question i think is what you kind of hit on towards the last part of your question which is does it make sense or is it worthwhile to always pursue i mean you can go and you know you're to take as an example, patent lawsuits, if they go all the way through. Most of them don't, most of them settle out, but you know, patent or a patent lawsuit, you're up into the million plus. You're in seven figures yeah. to get all the way through. Trademarks are usually six, or you're probably probably high five figures or six figures. So then tens of thousands, upwards, a hundred of thousands. And the question is generally is whether or not it's worth it to pursue. Meaning, if it's a small mom and pop shop that, hey, yes, they're technically infringing your brand, you're infringing app but Hey, they're making, they're not cutting into yourself. You, you know, the total amount you could get from them before they go bankrupt is a few thousand dollars or tens of thousands of dollars. If you're not going to send or set or spend enough or get, get enough to make it worthwhile. And, or you don't want to have that, you know, sometimes you get a reputation as being an aggressive, you know, Goliath that's trying to hammer people. And then it, it creates an image problem for your business. So you have to look and mm-hmm. say, are, is it worth pursuing? But other, other times, you're going to say, hey, this is a, they're eating into ourselves. We've seen a drop of 20 or 30% in ourselves. It's going to be a big deal. It's going to hit our bottom line and we have to pursue it. Then it is worth it because you're saying it's going to be worth it from our sales perspective because now we are having customers that are being confused and they're buying it from someone else and they're piggybacking off of ours. And so most of what I say is if you want it to be defensible, you can defend it. And there's, there's several different options depending on how you want it, aggressive you want to be but you need to look at and see, is there going to be enough return? I look at it the same as with, with everything else. Is there enough return on investment? Is there enough ROI to warrant the investment to go out and enforce it? If yes, yeah. then go out and enforce it. there's a good return on it. If no, then you have to say, okay, let's explore other options or just simply let it go. And while sometimes it irks you that somebody is riding your coattails, it may not make sense as a brand or as an investment. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it, it does. It does. Yeah, it's- uh, Our- it- It'd be nice to wave a magic wand and just have it go away
1: it's true and everybody you know it depends on which side of it in the sense that if you're on the side that you think that they're attacking you and it's frivolous you're saying i don't want them to just be able to i don't want to have to go pay all this we're just yeah you're on the other side we're saying hey we built tens or we spent years building this and tens of thousands yeah. of, millions of dollars in a brand and now somebody's writing our coattails and you're saying i want them to stop so it's hard to make everybody happy
0: <laughs> true true
1: All right. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. Appreciate the question. It's always fun to talk a little bit about intellectual property and certainly a topic I love. Uh, With that, appreciate again coming on the, the podcast, Teresa, and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last.
0: Thank you, Devin. Appreciate it very much.